for downloading this podcast and welcome to Arrow Bandwidth, the podcast to help the channel better understand the trends, technologies and concepts that are facing the IT industry today. I'm your host, David Fern, and we hope you enjoy this Arrow production and please subscribe. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to another Arrow Bandwidth. And uh, this one's going to be a real GDPR deep dive, super special, um, because we are, uh, well, obviously I've got Richard. Hello. As always. We've got uh, Rory McBride from our NetApp team. Hello, hello. And we have a, a very special guest. Now, we always like to bring a special guest in, but this time we've got a really special guest. Data privacy royalty. Precisely. <laughs> there now, we go. if you've got anything to do with NetApp or anything to do with um, GDPR on the whole, or you've read CityAM or a thousand and one other things she's been in, you will know this woman's name. We have Sheila, uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick. <laughs> You'll know my name, you just can't say it. I just can't. So, Sheila, would you like to name. introduce yourself? Certainly. So I'm Sheila Fitzpatrick, and I'm the Chief Privacy Officer at NetApp, and I'm responsible for compliance with data privacy laws in over 160 countries. Wow. Yeah. I think that's probably the, be- the best way that to describe that. That is probably the best description. <laughs> yeah. so, reaction, isn't it? So, Sheila, before we get into it, can you give us a bit of a background? Because we always like to sort of tee up our guests so that our listeners know the, the calibre of the individual that's, that they're listening to and that's, they're sort of taking their advice from. So give us a bit of your background. Sure, I'm happy to. So I have been an international data privacy attorney for over, I hate to say it, but 35 years. And I love to tell people I started at the age of five because they start doing the math and figuring out how old I am. <laughs> so I was a brilliant child. Um, I actually live and breathe data privacy laws. My expertise is in 160 countries. And I have um, worked for a number of very large organizations. I also had my own legal consulting firm as well for for a number of years. And I've been working with NetApp now as their chief privacy officer and worldwide data governance council for nine years, over over nine years. And I live and breathe (coughs) privacy. I am absolutely adamant about privacy. I am... Went to school. I was born in Dublin, Ireland, but raised in San Francisco, thus no brogue, which I never forgave my parents <laughs> for. But I have hung on to my Irish citizenship, and so when I want my personal data protected, I pull out my EU passport as opposed to my U.S. passport. And I uh, actually had the opportunity to go back to Trinity College in Dublin to get my international privacy law degree 30-plus um, years ago. Fantastic. So I think the first thing, and, and Bridget, I'm sure you'll agree with this, is... Mm. I think one of the biggest um, problems that we have in the industry today is it's always a terminology thing. We always say, you know, what's cloud? What's IoT? Yep. What is <clears throat> privacy? Because obviously it means a lot of things to a lot of people. There's a lot of misconception, a lot of misguidance. A lot of people think it's something. But actually, what is privacy? What is data privacy? What is all this about? So data privacy, and you're absolutely right, there's a lot of misconception um, out there, especially when you talk about privacy versus security. So privacy is the full life cycle of the personal data you collect from Mm -hmm. the time you collect it to the time you destroy it. It's that the individual's right to control and own their own personal data. Organizations, whether it's your employer, whether it's your partner, whether you're a consumer, um, you do not own someone's personal data. They own their personal data. And privacy is really the legal and regulatory requirements that define what you can do with that data, who can have access to it, where it can be stored, what it can be used for, how long you can maintain it, and whether or not you even have the legal right to have it. And that's the important concept of privacy. So it's that fundamental right to protect the information about yourself. Okay. So 
I suppose, obviously, that leads quite neatly and tidily into the big old elephant in everyone's room at the moment. Uh, don't mention a countdown clock, please. <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> which is GDPR. Right. So, obviously, I wanted to get onto that topic as soon as possible, so we've got the most time to discuss what, you know, some of your opinions on it and all that good stuff. So, GDPR, privacy, you know, obviously, this is essentially what you're out now on a bit of a global roadshow, talking to customers, talking to partners, talking to... We're off to Berlin next week to uh, to talk at NetApp Insight to right. massive crowds of people about GDPR. So, give us a bit of an idea of, of what are you finding at the moment? What's the state of the nation? You know, how is privacy and how are people getting their heads around all of this stuff? Sure, that's a great question because there's a lot of misleading information out in the marketplace today around GDPR. There's a lot of scaremongering. There's a lot of companies jumping mm -hmm. on the GDPR bandwagon. Yep. It's like the new Y2K. Yeah. Everyone is seeing it as a <laughs> revenue generator. And mm. I, I find it quite amusing that companies that have never been in the privacy space, that are not experts in data privacy, and frankly don't even know what GDPR stands for except for the acronym, have now all of a sudden become experts. And mm. if you look at people's, you know, companies' websites, everyone's got GDPR expertise, and they have these beautiful glossies, you know, these beautiful five-page glossies that are, you know, they're telling you, buy data lineage tools, buy data classification tools, put data in our cloud, and you'll be compliant with GDPR. And I really have to sit back and laugh, because GDPR is first and foremost a legal compliance issue and mm. then a business issue. Technology is a, is a component of it, mm -hmm. but it is not the most important component at the beginning. Um, so GDPR is all about that respecting that fundamental right to privacy and understanding what data, personal data, do you absolutely need in order to manage whatever relationship you're trying to manage, whether it's an employment relationship, whether it's a customer relationship, whether it's a partner relationship. What is the minimal amount of data you need in order to manage that relationship? And you don't start GDPR by going out and buying data lineage tools or going out and buying data classification tools or data mapping tools because it's great. At some point, you need to know what data you have, but just knowing what data you have doesn't mean you've complied with GDPR because if you're not legally allowed to have that data to begin with because you haven't built your data privacy compliance program, the tools and technology are not going to help you. No. It's like building a house starting at the second floor, and you have to build that ground floor first. So when I'm out talking to customers around the world, you know, I hear them tell me, well, we have a company that told us if we, you know, if we spent a million dollars and we bought this data classification tool, we'd be compliant with GDPR. And I literally have to laugh because they say, well, that's great, and that's going to be important down the line to help you maintain ongoing compliance, but it's absolutely not going to help you obtain compliance if you don't know what your privacy program yeah. looks like. Do you have binding corporate rules in place? Do you use monocontractual clauses? Are you dependent on the EU-US privacy shield, which hopefully not because it's a very fragile framework. <laughs> but it's building that legal compliance foundation first and then looking at the policies, the procedures, the contracts. You know, it has nothing to do with technology initially. Mm. There's 99 articles in GDPR. Only eight deal with technology. I mean, it's really interesting to hear, uh, I think for me, a very common sense answer to the question that, you know, Rory, David, myself, we, we kind of talk around that, and we have been talking around that for, God, it feels like, it, yeah, it feels like years now. Well, actually, it's probably been less than 12 months. But <clears throat> I have a bit of a question for you. So, 
Obviously, you've been in, involved in data privacy for a very long time. You are a subject <laughs> matter expert. A big organization like NetApp needs somebody in your role from a business function perspective. But, yeah, and this is a loaded question because I think I know the answer. Okay. Why, <laughs> why, why, are, why are NetApp now asking you to step out from behind the, the business function side of things and go out and speak to customers and partners? That, I mean, that's a great question. That's a question I get all the time because how many times do you ever ask an attorney to come out and meet with customers? Usually they want to bury us in the back <laughs> room and say, you know, please, please, please don't bring the attorney out there. I think it's because the program that I built at nine years ago is a model of excellence. And we never took a U.S.-centric approach to data privacy. We always took a very global, very proactive, very robust approach. Mm -hmm. And when I made the decision nine years ago that we weren't going to go with, at the time, it was Safe Harbor because I felt like it was a very um, misleading and not exactly an extremely compliant program. And I looked at what are the most restrictive laws in the world. So we looked at Germany, I looked at South Korea, I looked at New Zealand, built our entire data privacy program based on the most restrictive laws, and made the decision that we weren't going to manage data privacy piecemeal. We were going to manage a global program that met the most restrictive laws. And as a result, uh, went after what's called binding corporate rules, which is the highest level of achievement any company can reach. Less than 100 companies worldwide have binding corporate rules in place. Wow. And that actually became a competitive advantage for us. And so as our program now is self-sustaining, um, we have been identified as a model of excellence in over 160 countries. Um, we are known as a company that takes data privacy extremely seriously. It's part of our, you know, our data fabric. Um, our data fabric is all about managing, controlling, protecting, and securing your data. But if you don't deal with the privacy, which is the front end of that, mm. it's not really going to help manage the rest of the data. So um, make a long story short, because of our program, it be, we became a trusted advisor where companies, our customers, even prospects and partners, are coming to us and saying, how did you build this program? Mm. And how did you learn so much about data privacy laws? And how can we benefit? So um, our executives, George Korean, certainly our CEO, sees a tremendous amount of value in the trusted advisor role, which is very different. We're not in just talking to data storage um, architects. We're not mm. just talking to infrastructure people. Mm. We're now getting in to see C-level executives that are extremely concerned about compliance and data privacy and the truths and myths. So when I go out, I don't pull any punches, so you'll, you'll find out I'm pretty blunt, and if a company is doing something wrong, I'm going to tell them. That's not exactly the way you handle privacy. And, you know, one of my pet peeves is if, if they say, well, we have world-class security, therefore we're good with privacy. I swear I want to slap them, because it's not the right thing. And so the message is resonating, and um, it's not a traditional... NetApp role. It's not yeah. a sales. Um, you know, I hate to say it this the way I say it. It always sounds funny. NetApp doesn't sell me. It's that knowledge and expertise <coughs> that um, we can bring to our customers that mm. none of our competitors are bringing. Well, what I love is that you've done this proactively. You didn't do this in response to GDPR or, or something else. You've clearly thought ahead of time, this is just a really good thing to have. Yeah. And I love the fact that You've said it's a competitive advantage because actually, you know, if we look at the early doors PCI DSS compliance, mm -hmm. that you didn't have to implement that. Mm -hmm. But the reality was it became a competitive advantage to say we are PCI DSS compliant, talking about more of a security-based com compliance. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that became a competitive advantage because if you saw that brand on someone's website, 
you felt more confident to, to work with them. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting. I, I like the sort of the, the way you've sort of drawn something that could be entirely boring, <laughs> buried inside the business, and actually turned into something that differentiates you against other companies, other technology companies that, that are in the marketplace today. I find uh, that fascinating. Absolutely. One of the, the questions I get all the time is, why aren't your competitors out talking about this? And I said, because mm. that's not their business model. No. And, you know, the program, as I mentioned, I built it nine years ago, very quietly in many ways, because I have to say at that time, you know, NetApp didn't approach it as, we're going to go out and get the competitive advantage by, by adopting the most restrictive laws we can. It was more of my passion around data privacy and that fundamental belief that, each and every one of us owns our own personal data. The mm. company doesn't own it. We don't have the right to take liberties with that data. And the more transparent you are about the collection and use of data, the more not only your customers want to do business with you, but your partners want to do business with you, and employees want to work for a company that they believe <coughs> truly yeah. has their best interest at heart when it comes to their personal data. I mean, there's times that you know we have to be transparent about what we collect data for, and it may not be something that people like, but if we have a legal requirement to maintain that data and collect it, we're going to be upfront about that. So we're not going to hide anything. And I find that a lot of companies don't want to tell people what data they're collecting on them and mm. what they're doing with that data. They're afraid to. And if yeah. you're afraid to tell them, you shouldn't have the data. Well, someone once told me, um, just don't be creepy with data. Yeah, that's a perfect, that's a perfect <laughs> yeah. example. Yeah, creepy is, yeah, creepy is true. Yeah. You, you think about companies that make their money off of selling personal data, it's kind of creepy. It is kind of creepy. Yeah. I, I think as well, there's this, there's this other aspect and view of it, which, which I find fascinating is the wrong, the wrong, wrong word, but I'd be interested in your view on this. A lot of conversations I've had recently have been, been around, oh, hang on a minute. When do we actually have to go and seek consent for the data we've got? And when he's holding the data, what data can we hold? Because actually we're, we're allowed to, or it ticks that box of being a legitimate purpose. And it's like, well, yes, you need to get your facts right as what fall in which camp, but surely you need to take a step back before you even have that type of conversation. It comes back to the whole, right, what am I doing with data in my business, first and foremost? Yeah. Uh, and again, it's kind of a, another way of looking at that. It, is it a bit creepy sort of thing? Mm. But the whole... The whole view for me is, uh, yeah, uh, where I'm going with this this comment um, is GDPR is, t to me, like you said, there's 99 articles in it. It's it's a framework. You can't focus on just one element of it, yeah. whether it be the technical element, whether it be the interpretation of what those articles are. You really have got to take a step back and take a holistic view. Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you start by looking at the foundation. So I, le I use the analogy <coughs> of building a house. Mm -hmm. When you build a house, you don't start by building the second floor. No. And you know, as we mentioned, a lot of companies jumping on the GDPR bandwagon yeah. are all of a sudden experts. And they're automatically trying to sell you data lineage tools, as I mentioned, data classification tools, and data discovery tools, which are extremely important, and they are part of the journey. But you don't start there. Because if you're just looking at what data you currently have and where that data is, you've missed the whole point of GDPR, mm. which is, what is the minimum amount of data you need in order to manage the relationship? Why are you collecting that data? Do you have a legal right to collect it? How transparent are you about the collection of that data? What do your contractual agreements look like? You know, how do you obtain consent? How transparent are your consents? 
mean, you think about terms and conditions where you're obtaining someone's consent to collect their data. Mm -hmm. Most T's and C's are so complicated yeah. and so ambiguous ambiguous, that mm. you have no idea what you're consenting to. Okay. And under GDPR, if you tick the box and say, okay, I'll give my consent because there's no way I'm going to read this, you know, 40-page T's and C's, <laughs> that's now going to be invalidated under GDPR. <laughs> you have to be very clear, explicit, and transparent about what you're doing with data. You have to build the ground floor before you can start looking at the technology to help you maintain ongoing compliance. Mm. So you have to do it in a very methodical way where I say you start with the ground floor, which is your data privacy compliance program. The first floor are your policies, your procedures, your processes, your uh, data privacy agreements, your, trans your um, transparent contract contracts with third parties and internally, it's your opt-ins. It's building that foundation. And once you have your compliance program in place, where you can say, for NetApp, our data privacy program is global. It is based on binding corporate rules. Mm -hmm. There is nothing higher to achieve than that. We've rolled that out globally. And then you can start introducing tools and technology to help you maintain that ongoing compliance and understand things like data lineage, the flow of that data, where that data exists, uh, data classification, understanding what type of data you're collecting and what type of environment that data should be in. So don't get me wrong, technology is impor important, but you don't start there. No. So, oh, oh, go, on, go on. I was just going to ask, Rory, I'd be interested in your view. Yeah, everything that Sheila's just said there and, and throughout the course of this podcast <coughs> makes absolute perfect sense from a common sense approach and view. Do you find that with with some of the some of the partners that we work with and some of their end clients where where they're faced with a a large volume of personal data, are these topics that are they just have they always been there or are they just coming to the fore because it's it's just that come up people's you know customers' agendas right now and visibility. Is this is this something that's kind of, as I say, always been there? Or is it like, oh, God, it's like, oh. I think it's a concern people have had for a while, but as it becomes more mainstream, it's something that they have to deal with. They can't really bury their head in the sand. And, you know, I think a lot of fear-mongering was probably done, you know, late 2016, early 2017, yeah. when the, the first draft came out, that buy technology and it'll solve all your GDPR problems. Uh, and I think... A lot of people are wising up to the fact that actually I have bought this. Is it have I ticked all the boxes, or and what is it I've I've actually achieved with this spend? Mm. I've heard as well people talk about well I just have to show the fact that I'm trying to be compliant and that'll avoid a, a fine, which again again is another um, burying your head in the sand sort of a, approach. So I think if people want to move forward, they need to start thinking about. Um, what processes they're putting in place, mm. what data they are keeping, how they're keeping it. You know, I was reading something ahead of today about uh, the, the, ch the challenge for, for marketeers moving forward with GDPR, you know, what yeah. information they can collect, how yeah. they can store it, um, processing of that information as well, um, and all of the, the joys that come with that. So I, mean, I think that's going to be a big challenge for a lot of people out there. I mean, even our own marketing team are probably going to have fun looking at how they, they keep the information. Mm. So... I, I'm, 
I'm hearing more and more people talk about it, and I think it is affecting whether how long we keep that information. And the other big thing that you know was kind of been banded around as well as a, as a challenge is the the right to be forgotten piece that mm -hmm. people talk about as well within the GDPR framework. Sorry, I cut in front of you, Dave. That's all right, mate. Go so on. I was I was going to say, look, so this is what GDPR and privacy is at a high level. Well, let's dive into some of the the frequently asked questions I get, mm. the, and and more of the sort of terminology definitions that we get. That, to be honest, I have no idea about, which is why we've got you, Sheila. Yay. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> obviously, GDPR is solely concerned with what, what's termed as PII, personally identifiable data. Right. So, could you define what is, and more importantly, what isn't personally identifiable data? How much, how much data does there need to be for it to be classified as personally identifiable? And how much is... so? You go, you go, and, okay. and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll chuck my little, my little... He's risking answering his own question, a bit like <laughs> I do. Well, no, no, I think, I, think no. I know the answer, but I don't know the answer. Well, that's it. There's so much I think I know the answer yeah. to this, isn't there? So. Well, so I can start with one thing. When you use the term PII, or personally identifiable information, it automatically sets up alerts in the EU that this is an American talking, because the only country that really uses the term PII is in the US. Oh. Anywhere else in the world, <laughs> ah. it's personal data, or personal information. And so we adopted the global term with just personal data. And personal data is any piece of information that is identifiable to a person or can identify a person either directly or indirectly. So that would mean, if you have someone's name, obviously that's personal data. Mm -hmm. If you have, say, their employee ID number, yeah. that's all you have, but you can go through a process to try that back to a person, that's personal data. Okay. Now, under GDPR, the definition has expanded even more. There's now IP address, unique identifiers, location data, biometric information, and genetic information is now considered personal data if you can go through a process to tie those data elements okay. back to a specific person. So say, for instance, you have 20,000 IP addresses, and there is no way you can tie that back to a specific person then it is not included under GDPR in the definition. But if you have a way of going back, you, know, you think you talk about marketing. Yeah. Marketing deals with a ton of data. Oftentimes they'll say, well, we don't really keep, you know, we, we collect IP address, but we can't really tie it back to a person. But if you dig down, they actually can, in many cases, go back and tie it back to a specific person. And in that case, it is considered personal data. So the only data that is not considered personal data would be aggregate, statistical, anonymous yeah. data that in no way, shape, or form can be tied so back that's, to a person. That's, what I, that's exactly what I was sort of going with this, this comment. Was So in this office, for example, um, we collect huge amounts of data. So we have yeah. our Wi-Fi system. Admit to nothing. Admit to nothing. Oh, I'm more than happy because <laughs> we thought about this in advance. So uh. our, our, our systems collect huge amounts of data. Our sign-in system collects huge amount of data, photograph, name, all sorts, inside leg measurement. Yep. Um, but what we're doing is we're keeping that data for a very short period of time, a day to two days, and then we turn it into aggregated, anonymized data. Mm -hmm. So we turn it into um, essentially statistics on how many of a certain customer came in. You know, how many people do we have at certain times of the day? So that, that would essentially negate me needing to be GDPR compliant or not. No, it would, provided that that information cannot be tied back to a person. Yeah. So if you're completely destroying any way to tie that back to a specific person like Sheila Fitzpatrick, 
then you're fine. But if you say, well, we, we're moving it out of one system, we're keeping and we're using aggregate data, but we still have the actual personal data stored somewhere else, yeah. and you can go through a process to re-engineer that data, then that would be considered personal data. So then that brings me on to the next question, which is, how do you... This isn't you a free consulting session. You do know <laughs> that, don't you? Hey, hey, our partners are listening, and they're, they're scribbling down. <laughs> That's the most important thing. I'm asking the questions they want to ask. How do you prove that you've destroyed the data? And, and, and this is a two-factor question, twofold. Firstly, when you have the data and you own it and you've got it on disk on your own technology, mm -hmm. and secondly, how do you prove and, com and where does the, the governance and the regulatory compliance reside when it's in a... So both of the services I described are SaaS services. Right. One is from one of our wireless vendors, one is from the vendor we use for our check-in system. How can I essentially turn around, delete the record? We'll go back and delete it on their system. So I've deleted on their system, but they store the data themselves in some backup or something like that. Where does the responsibility lie then? So in that case, that's, that's a situation where you're the customer, your third-party provider is the uh, data processor. You're the yep. controller, they're the, they're the processor. In your data privacy agreements that you have to enter into, you have to clearly articulate the role of the controller and the processor and the obligation to destroy data and to provide a legal certification that, that, the, that the data has been completely destroyed and it cannot be tied back to a person. Part of it is subjective and part of it is trust because there's no way they're going to let you into their systems to see whether or not that data actually uh, exactly. resides. So it goes back to the trust factor and what the contractual agreement says. If at some point in time they have committed to they're destroying the data and you then find out that that data has in fact not been destroyed, then that becomes a legal issue. So that would be my, the terms and conditions I've agreed with my SaaS provider would state when, how they were going to destroy the data. And where that data is going to be stored because part of the challenge of a cloud environment, and I'm by no means anti-cloud, I always have to say that, is that that lack of transparency. And oftentimes when you say, you know, I want to store my data in your environment, I want to engage you as a SaaS provider, you ask, where is my data going to be stored? And the, the initial response is, you pick the data center. Well, that's great if I'm going to pick the data center, but if that data center goes down, what data center is picking up the load? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. what happens if yeah. you have a third party that supports that environment and they're not in the same jurisdiction? So it's incumbent on the customer to ask privacy-related questions of SaaS and cloud providers, not just security. And oftentimes, what the questions that are asked are, do you encrypt my data? Is it encrypted in transit and at rest? Do you use tokenization? Yeah. Where's the data backed up and replicated? But they don't ask questions around the flow of the data. Where's the data flowing through before it actually gets to the data center? Yeah. Who manages that data center? What third parties support that environment? How do you get your data back once there's no longer a business relationship? What if your SaaS provider gets a legal hold on your data? How do you know that your data is under legal hold? So there's a whole set of privacy-related questions that are totally different from security that have to be asked before you deal with security. So, sorry, Rich, one, one last thing, and this is specifically for our listeners, because those of whom are not completely au fait with GDPR might be um, confused by some of the terminologies used. So could you just very quickly explain controller, processor, and I believe there's one more, is there an end user or is that? Sure, so uh, the, data, the data controller would be the organization that actually initially collects the data for a specific purpose, whether it's the um, employer, so for instance in the relationship with the NetApp, NetApp would be the data controller, 
I'm the data subject because it's my data. Subject. I am giving permission to NetApp to collect and process my data for a sp very specific purpose. If NetApp in turn engages the services of a third party to provide services on their behalf, that third party is a data processor. They cannot take arbitrary decisions or use that data for any purpose for which they choose. They can only use the data for the purpose for which the contract was agreed. And, and whether it's a statement of work, whether it's a processing agreement, but processors provide a service on behalf of data controllers, and they must adhere to the regulations and the requirements defined by the controller in the data privacy agreement. Um, so that's extremely important. Any third party that provides a service on, another, uh, on behalf of another organization that has any interaction with personal data, even if it's just hosting it, even if they never even touch that data, but they're providing an environment in which to store the data, they're considered a data processor under the law. Okay, so this is, this is a really important piece for me. I, uh, we see so much fud and confusion, like you say, and mm -hmm. you mentioned it as well. Um, in the marketplace around, oh, you've got a lot of customers, you're keeping a lot of personal data on those customers, oh, GDPR, GDPR, countdown clock, oh, sort yourself out, oh, you're going to get fined, oh, don't be caught out. But actually, there's more, there's more than just a, a B2C business-to-consumer mm -hmm. relationship at play, at play here, and you've alluded to it. You know, the businesses contracts not just with their customers and their staff, <coughs> but their suppliers. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you know what services you're consuming? How do you know what what service providers you're using, whether they be a CSP, an MSP, whether they be an application? There's a massive piece of work here, which is, again, comes back to what you were saying at the start about not just technology, it's business processing, it's a legal requirement. Reviewing all those contracts that you've got in place and saying, right, I'm consuming services here. If how do I know that I'm not leaving myself exposed to my staff, my customers, because of a supplier I'm using? Absolutely, and that part of that is not only understanding what your supplier is doing, but what sub-processors does your supplier use? Oh. Because then it becomes a domino effect. Mm. If, if you're the customer engaging a third party, and you know, use the cloud as an example, you need to ask the questions that are, does your third-party supplier use other sub-processors to provide a service on their behalf to support your yeah. environment? And what happens is, in that case, your data processor, your, your, your SaaS provider or cloud provider, becomes, in effect, a co-controller because they then turn around and they engage a third party who's their data processor, and they're defining what services their sub-processors are going to provide. So it becomes a domino effect. And as the customer, you need to know all the way down the line who's, who has access to that data. Not, not just physical access, but who's providing a service that could impact that personal data. And that ties to what's called the privacy impact assessment that you have to conduct under GDPR wow. to determine what's the impact on privacy. Everyone always conducts security impact assessments. Yeah. They never think about the privacy impact assessment. No. That's even more important because the security impact assessment is not going to help you if you're not legally allowed to have that data to begin no. with. So, right. 
I've, I've got a, I've got a, 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 a semi-theoretical question here, but I think actually it's been born out in a previous situation that we had where law change, legislation change, and all of a sudden mm. everyone went crazy and, and we're still in a bit of a weird situation. So in the UK, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased if I'm telling you something, it's okay to say, we had this thing called PPI, mm-hmm. so payment protection, uh, payment protection insurance. Insurance. insurance, that was yeah. one, thank you. And essentially, what happened was it was rightly or wrongly missold by lots and lots of banks and everyone else. And now we're in a situation where every sort of two-bit man in a shed is phoning up people going, I'll tell you what, we can get your money back for missold payment protection insurance. Will GDPR become the next, you know, your data's not been, not been used correctly, you know, we're going to help you, you know, no win, no fee to get your data back. And if you don't, then you'll be able to settle, you know, we can settle with this company, you know, to stop them having the massive fines. And is that, is that, because I've heard this sort of rumour, scare mill. Conflicting mil. views we've heard, haven't yeah. we? <laughs> I'd be interested to know, though, because this this could, yeah. think think nefariously, though. think about the, the sort right. of mentality of these people who build PPI companies to try and... So the next ambulance chasing. Bingo, yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, and I think we're going to definitely see an uptick in companies that are going to try to help you get your data back yeah. or try to go after companies that they that they feel might be abusing your data. Um, and you're right, they're like ambulance chasers. You're going to see um, some nefarious companies and individuals that are going to try to make money off of you. Um, certainly, you're going to see an uptick in what are called subject access requests. People are going to want to know what data organizations are, are yeah. holding on them, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think at the same time, GDPR should not be viewed as um, something to scare you. It certainly should not be viewed as a regulation that is stopping you from collecting data. Data is your greatest asset. You need mm-hmm. it to run your organization. What GDPR is trying to make you do is be transparent about the collection and use of data. If you can't be transparent and you're not upfront about why you need personal data, because to manage certain relationships, you have to have personal data. Yeah. But it's that um, that lack of transparency and that trying to hide, that scope creep. When you, you collect data for one purpose and use it for 19 other purposes yes. that were never approved. <laughs> and I think that's where you're going to see a lot of these companies jump on the bandwagon saying, oh, we'll help you find out what that company's doing with your data. And then you can go after and sue them. And, and that's not the intent of GDPR. But you're always going to find people that jump on the bandwagon. And yeah. certainly... Come May 25th, I, you know, I predict for at least six months, you're going to see companies going crazy just from the sheer number of subject access requests they're going to start getting. Because people are going to want to know, because of some of these companies, they'll say, you should go and find out what your employer has on you. You should go and find out what, you know, what, you know, what businesses have on you. Mm. Um, and it's going to cause some problems for companies for a while. I think as well, we, we said at the start of this podcast, didn't we, it, this is one of those topics that it affects the industry that we're in but also it's getting, it's getting airtime in general press as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, customers, data subjects, are becoming a little bit more savvy. Yeah, so you know, just by seeing a news clip, hearing something on the radio, reading something in a paper, that, well, yeah, those pages and pages of terms and conditions that I have to click to accept to get to the service that I want, whether it be accessing a e-book or a newspaper or just even collecting my retail points for going into a coffee shop. Right. What, they do? what, what have I actually signed up to there? 
And, and, that's, and that's another issue under GDPR because you can no longer do forced or implied consent. The consent has to be freely given, mm -hmm. explicit, unambiguous. Uh, the only time you actually have the legal right to collect data is in an employment relationship or a customer relationship where you have to have certain data yeah. in order to generate an invoice or to manage um, a contractual relationship to pay your employees. But this forcing people, you know, perfect example, you know, I was on the airplane uh, last night, and to log into the internet, they wanted my email address and my birth date. Well, why yeah, did they need that? Mm. I mean, what business That's obvious, is... Yeah, obviously out of scope. Yeah, it's, it's totally out of scope. But oftentimes, people don't think about that. They just say, oh, well, I want to use the service, so I'll, mm -hmm. I'll provide the information, yeah. where legally... In order to use the internet, you don't need you don't need my personal details. No. If you're, especially mm. if you're providing me a free service, why are you collecting my data? Yeah, it comes right back to that thing. Don't be creepy with data. Exactly. Trust. I love that. Trust. 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 That's Absolutely. it. And I think we're starting to see some organisations take GDPR not as not as a problem to be fixed, but as an opportunity to not say exploit, but to maybe start to change the way they interact. A little bit like NetApp. NetApp have done. You yeah. know, where it's like, well, actually, no, we we believe in this. We see some value that can be gained by more than just ticking a box from an audit or a compliance perspective. This is about how how we position ourselves, Absolutely. how we turn ourselves into, like you said, a trusted advisor there. Yeah. I'm very proud of the program that we have at NetApp, and I'm very proud of our executives that have committed to data privacy and actually understand it, as opposed to... You know, I tell people, stop fighting the laws. Embrace them, yeah. because it really, don't turn it into a negative, turn it into a positive. So yeah, very positive. I mean, I think this, this, it's also opening up the doors for those new companies that are coming through, that mm. this is the information that you can store, and this is how you can process it, and actually turn, in, turn it into some sort of value with your company. Uh, and I think if you look at it in a positive light, there's a lot more you can do with GDPR than you maybe could have done previously. And yeah. you get it right today, it's going to help people for, mm. for years to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, it feels like we're approaching the end. I think it does. Look, Sheila, it's been more than a pleasure to have you here and to, as Rich uh, quite rightly put it, have a bit of a free, uh, a free consultative <laughs> session <laughs> on some of our own uh, GDPR sort of... Um, yeah, no, yeah, it's not mine. I'm mis fine. Misunderstand. I'm, I'm sat next to <laughs> Sheila. But I'm really, really pleased. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. And um, I know that you're all over the place, but if you're ever back in London... Please, please, please let us know. We would love to do part two of this. Maybe next year after May and, you know, hear a bit of a... Or, if or the sky just, hasn't fallen. If the sky hasn't fallen, <laughs> no. But what I'd love to do is I'd love to I do it care. just before how, you know, how much is everyone's hair on fire, then yeah. just after how much is everyone's hair even more on fire, and then, you know, where do we go from there? So, but the, thank you ever so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, great. Well, thank you, and it's been a pleasure for me. And I am in London probably every month, if not every other ah, month. Well, so. you've, just, you've just signed <laughs> you've yourself just up. You've just volunteered yourself. You've volunteered yourself. You are, now, you are now an official friend of the show. Oh, I love that. Okay, awesome. well, I look forward to coming back. Awesome. Rory, Brilliant. thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Rich, I don't have to say thank you to you. You're on every freaking one. Uh, it feels <laughs> nice, though. It's it always does. a pleasure. Never Thanks, pay. matey. All right, guys, thank you ever so much for listening to this. Brilliant. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I certainly did. And we'll see you next time. Not half. Cheers. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.